Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Peaks. Sometimes I forget how to do these episodes, <laughs> but that's the intro for you, the crew out there listening, watching. Excited with your popcorn ready? I hope so, because we got a great episode today. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, joined by co-host Jason Friesma, LPC LAC, Chief Clinical Officer at Peaks Recovery Centers, all things clinical, just in case we got to uh, break out the tissues and dive into some CBT or something. I don't even see nature. the tissue anywhere. You all seen him do his work on this show. It <laughs> happens. We're live. And joined today uh, with uh, Jonathan DiCarlo, CEO of C4 Consulting. And we're going to dive into his work through C4 Consulting uh, and all of the consulting that you do in the behavioral health industry in that regard. So Jonathan, thank you so much for being down here and hanging out with us today. Well, thank you, Brandon and Jason, for, for having us and inviting uh, me down and the opportunity to, to continue our uh, several legacy of dialogue on improving behavioral health. Yes, love it. That's what we do at all the conferences. For the viewers out there, I chase Jonathan DiCarlo down. When I see him, I'm like, <laughs> I got to get in that guy's brain. Also, master's degree in philosophy or philosophy of some yeah, sort. Background in philosophy. Background in yeah. philosophy. That's why we're so good at communicating with each other. Um, for another episode, though, uh, today, in regards to C4 Consulting, uh, what is it for the viewers out there, uh, namely speaking to the industry, uh, insiders out there and the crew, um, what are you guys doing and what are you committed to as a project? So C4 Consulting is a behavioral health consulting firm, so we are the provider's provider. Uh, one of our clients calls us the behavioral health geek squad. Nice. So we solve challenges and help create and implement solutions for uh, treatment providers in behavioral health, substance use, mental health, the ABA space, foster care, integrative medicine, you know, the widest sense of behavioral health. Uh, we are a division of C4 Recovery Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that's been around for uh, over 38 years, uh, invested in, in policy and advocacy, access to care, quality standards of treatment. You know, so our role in service to organizations is really helping organizations such as Peaks and others uh, improve their processes, their system, their services, whether that's strategy, growth, uh, you know, financial performance, program expansion, clinical enhancement, technical assistance training, um, really soup to nuts that everything that a provider really needs. Uh, and whether that's an individual and, you know, private practice all the way up to, you know, large hospital systems, multi-state consortiums, we're an international consultancy with 30 consultants coast to coast and one in Europe uh, and, and clients uh, abroad. Uh, you know, really honored to partner with the folks that we uh, get to serve and we take pride in our ability to be able to be a high integrity service provider in the consulting world. Love it. Uh, for the viewers out there, of course, Jason, you know, uh, if you, Jonathan, if you've watched any of these episodes, I always point at behavioral health companies' websites because we're about hope and uh, uh, alleviating the symptomology and uh, the depression and the dual diagnosis and all those things. Our websites say we are so good at those things, yet we have consulting in our industry. So it can't be all those things. And we're not going to point at any websites or companies today or anything like that. But I think a good thing to, to kind of showcase from there is, uh, you know, in all of the experiences that you have, what do you see uh, working well within our industry, you know, at this time? Uh, I know it's a big question, but you know, we'll start big and then we'll, we'll shoot other questions through there. It is, I think really one of the biggest things that's happening, especially in the last, I would say 12 to 24 months, 
really has been an awareness of the need for treatment resources. I think more time, effort, and energy both within our space and in the public consciousness has been raised about the need and impact of behavioral health in communities. Uh, and so I think our industry is doing well in being able to start to answer the call of community need. Um, some people may challenge that and say, well, it's just a cash grab and people are just out there to make money on the suffering of others. But that's not really why people get into this industry by and large. You know, mm -hmm. there are certainly corporations that see the economic advantage of public awareness being raised, uh, you know, in this process. But when we look at things like the opiate uh, pandemic prior to the COVID-19 pandemic and the rising need of behavioral health broadly, both in substance use and mental health in the United States and around the world, you know, I think that's something that we're doing well is being able to be present and adaptively respond to the needs of our communities. Mm -hmm. Providers are really challenging themselves to diversify their services in ways that meet community needs, sometimes incredibly ethically and sometimes not so much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the not so much part certainly is the downside, but I think that's one thing that our industry does well is to say we're here and we're present and although that may be challenging for some in a community, I do think the industry is doing well in trying to improve access to care. Mm -hmm. There's a huge runway to that mm -hmm. of improving that, but things like the Mental Health Parity Act, uh, you know, are a starting point of you know providing resources for people to receive treatment mm -hmm. and providers to be able to begin to have a dialogue about what is equitable and equitable and fair reimbursement look like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those things are, you know, on their way, mm -hmm. long way from, from true equity, mm -hmm. uh, which will come in, in a later question. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think, you know, the public awareness and the ability to be present in communities is something that our industry is really improving and doing well with. Wonderful. And then, yeah, as I alluded to from our, our hopeful websites, you know, that we don't convey on the front end of a treatment episode. It's, you know, what do you see as the kind of the backdrop in all the organizations that you maybe the organizations that you've worked with or not necessarily the organizations in particular, but just at the national level, you know, what are we still missing? Or what are you seeing as kind of the, the big lacunas in our industry in that regard? I think quality information and educating consumers and the public on how to find the right treatment resources, uh, I think there's a lot of room for growth with that, mm. of, you know, teaching consumers, you know, people making investments in their, their own well-being or their family members' well-being, um, and providers being able to share the right information with transparency mm -hmm. uh, and authenticity, not just marketing, mm -hmm. not just saying we do all things, but really being able to say, here's what we do well and here's how we're, we're a good fit. So I think that education of access to care, while access, you know, there certainly needs to be more effort grown in it, I think the the education of people understanding how to pursue treatment. Mm -hmm. And I have a great example of it. Uh, I am a, a person in long-term recovery myself, and I had a friend of mine in my recovery community reach out looking for a resource in Southern California where he used to live, and he was looking for a particular 12-step-based resource and was just trying to get a hold of the local 12-step uh, you know, group to connect someone to. And what he kept finding when he Googled was rehab.com and all these numbers, and he thought he was calling the local 12-step community outreach line, mm -hmm. um, and they kept trying to sell him treatment. Mm -hmm. 
And so he reached out to me and said, how do I find the local you know, 12-step group? And I said, oh, Orange County, California? Yeah, uh, go to the national website yeah. and then drill down into the state and you'll find. And, and he did, and it, he's like, why was this so hard? I'm like, because there's competition to try and advertise for access to care. So I think educating consumers on what the resources are and the transparency you know, is something that both providers and communities need to work, work on together. Mm -hmm. you know, starting with local, local consortiums and platforms uh, and groups and then building out from the local into the regional into the national. Yeah. <clears throat> what, do you, what do you recommend, if you don't mind me asking, yeah, what, do you, what do you recommend for a consumer? Because this is a big hot button for me too, like a family member is in distress, I found a powder in my son's room or whatever, and I need a resource now, and then you get on Google and differentiating between all these beautifully shiny websites of what to do. How, what do you recommend to people like that, to families? I think one of the resources that comes up, and it may sound like a strange one, but it's call your health insurance provider and find out who they're in network contracts and, and, and have relationships with hmm. because that process requires a vetting of providers, right? So going to those types of actions of go to the resources you have and start there. Going to your primary care health physician and saying who are the trusted sources in your community, your family health practitioner, you know, your doctor who takes care of you and has taken care of your children for years, probably knows someone in the community that he trusts. Mm -hmm. And even though he may not be able to recommend you directly to a treatment center, he's gonna recommend you to someone or at least call someone that he knows mm -hmm. that's a trusted, verified source that's then going to have an authentic referral that's been vetted at some level mm. and bring you much closer, much faster to someone in your community that you know, has that relationship with the right information. Um, I actually got a call from a friend of mine last night mm. uh, about something very similar with a family member saying, hey, you're the person I know um, and I know, you know, you're, you're in consulting, and I know you know the whole network of, of alcoholism treatment providers here in Denver. My friend lives in this part of town. His, his brother's really concerned. Family needs to do something. Would you at least talk to them? You know, and, and that's how it happened, was he reached out to me knowing that I was a trusted resource mm. with information. So I think for a family member, Google's not a bad thing, but you got to get past and realize that the first four or five lines on Google are the paid ads, and then start looking at the actual treatment websites that are beneath that, but go to the resources that you have. Yeah. Because your, your health insurance provider um, is gonna have resources and they're gonna have numbers and they're gonna have advocates uh, you know, in their uh, part that are just there to help you navigate some of those resources. But family practitioners, uh, mm -hmm. you know, medical care, local community resources, people may find this absurd and strange, um, but anybody who's finding a powder in their son or daughter's bedroom is probably had a run-in with the local authorities, calling you know your your local law enforcement for resources. Another one because chances are they've worked with the local providers uh, in some capacity mm -hmm. uh, to be able to know them. So finding the trusted, authentic sources I think is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Google gets you lost, uh, and it's you know it takes skill even as a provider to know what you're looking at. Uh, you know when we're looking at resources, um, and it's you know it's a different. Uh, episode, I think, for that one, <laughs> yeah. in, in, in its entirety, and I know yeah. you guys have covered that before, but that's, you know, I think starting with those, yeah. those resources in your life, and chances are, 
most people know someone um, who's had a mental health or a substance use challenge and, and has turned their life around. Call them. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I appreciate the question. I appreciate the insights. And I think that's one of the things that we've worked, uh, I don't want to say tirelessly. I mean, it's a big word, but it's Thursday, end of the week. I'm going to use the word tirelessly on in this episode to give family systems the education and uh, information they need. So whether it's an ad or rehabs.com or whatever the link is they're clicking on or the number they're calling at the end of the day to empower family systems with just good questions to ask treatment centers, right? Because you know, admissions teams are generally more hungry to fill a treatment center than they are hungry to, you know, educate about is it around what is a best fit for the operation in that regard and empowering family systems with questions or, or family systems with questions they can ask providers or treatment centers around that to better negotiate whether this is going to be a good fit for uh, not only their loved one, but, you know, from, a, from an economic situation as well, too, whether it's in-network, uh, out-of-network Medicaid resources right. and so forth. Uh, so the, the, you know, as an out of network provider, um, not going to be able to call Blue Cross Blue Shield and flying peaks recovery centers, but <laughs> with that, uh, it's, it's a, it's a hot button for me because, uh, in that way of things, I agree with in network contracting. It, it provides greater access. It lowers the cost, uh, uh, for treatment episodes, for family systems and so forth. But one of the things we find ourselves kind of caught in a rut with right now. And I think this goes back to, you know, taxable dollars and these things that we've talked about in the past, Jonathan, but um, I think it'd be helpful for viewers just to kind of hear and understand some of these frustrations and kind of walls that centers hit. So for example, Peaks Recovery Centers has tried to go in network, but we get hit with, you know, uh, quotes of, well, this is what the market will bear. What they're stating out of that, I believe, is, uh, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, is like, okay, well, if you're just going to deliver this service and you're not going to, you know, prioritize evidence-based practices or whatever, then our fee-for-service contract looks like this. But we also have this value-based approach thing over here that's happening at the same time. And I was just curious, uh, before we kind of dive, you know, kind of deeper into this rabbit hole about this, when I think about value-based approaches to care, the thing that I'm running is I try to tell the insurance company, no, we're valuable. Here's all the things we're doing. Here's our outcome data, all that sort of stuff. And it seems like they're not really equipped in the background, uh, at least at this moment, to, you know, they're not building the systems. And A, they, a and then B, they seem uh, as if they are uh, a little disinterested in the value proposition I'm trying to bring in at the same time. And I, I know you've worked in, you know, contracting uh, across several, you know, payers and, um, you know, businesses within our industry. So I'm just curious if you can uh, help support the viewers out there, kind of this, this thing that I bring up lightly on Finding Peaks from time to time, uh, but to talk more about kind of the pains within that and then what those solutions are, are not only for family systems, but you know, for our industry and individuals trying to go in network because the fee for service, you know, fee that's lobbed over the fence in the first regard to me, I've often talked about isn't sustainable, I think from an industry standpoint, staffing and so forth. So uh, insights, I know you can deal with my tangents. I'm sure you heard like five questions in there, but I've, he'll run with it folks. <laughs> I'll pick up on the, on the broad strokes and run forward. Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the great challenges for everyone involved in a care, healthcare ecosystem, specifically in behavioral healthcare, uh, is understanding how reimbursements actually work, right? So the insurance company's job is to spend as little 
money as necessary to provide the accessible benefit for their member. Mm -hmm. They have not only goals but mandates to keep spend parameters for healthcare within a certain tolerance. Very complex algorithms and actuarial tables and all this economic and, and math that would drive most people insane, but some really love that stuff. And it's extremely complex, but it's ultimately challenging to value the care for a life. When it comes to behavioral health care in particular, um, larger health care has worked progressively, and, and you mentioned it, Brandon, values-based programming, so what are often referred to in healthcare as accountable care organizations, or ACOs. So for certain conditions, there's a predictive set of things that you do. You know roughly what it's going to cost to treat someone with a broken leg, you know how much the, the initial physician's assessment is going to be, how much time the nurse is going to need to spend, you know, examining it, forming the cast, taking the x-rays, and you're able to calculate a cost for a continuum of treatment mm -hmm. um, because it's relatively predictive. Things like diabetes management, uh, things like cardiac conditions, uh, you know, the, the procedures for those diagnoses uh, can be calculated roughly within a predictive tolerance of, of what that costs to produce and what's fair for a provider to be able to do that. In behavioral health care, it's much more complex because we're asking you to, as a provider, to take care of the entirety of someone's life, health, medical, social, financial, uh, you know, domestic, and uh, no one individual has the same set of symptoms, the same set of parameters. So our industry is challenged on, on both the payer and the provider side with diagnostics that can adequately be tracked uh, to say this is how much time you should spend dealing with that feeling <laughs> of that traumatic wound that you experienced <laughs> as a child when your parents got divorced and your dad then moved to Kuala Lumpur to be a CFO for uh, you know, whatever gaming company farmed him out. Like the reality of these things, and you grow up, uh, you know, with these challenges and these, these uh, you know, different traumatic events and adverse childhood experiences compile uh, to produce substance use disorder, uh, you know, in your life, which then becomes a primary life-threatening condition. Right. right. All of these things are a part of the work that we do in behavioral health. So there's a tremendous challenge both to say to a, a payer, this is how much time we need to accurately and, and precisely assess someone, to understand their needs, to respond to the treatment. Uh, again, in, in other healthcare settings, you know, you know that it's going to take six to eight weeks for that bone to heal or, you know, 12 months for you to lose that weight to then qualify for the diabetes management program, what, you know, whatever those things are that are, that are correlative. Um, the healthcare industry and the payer side of things, specifically with commercial, you know, sources, but even public health funded sources like Medicare and Medicaid are challenged on, on the values-based side to create opportunities to say, we're going to reward based on performance uh, of a combination of things and share the responsibility, which in the payer world is called risk management, <laughs> right? right yeah. But the responsibility to each other as the provider and the payer in the service to the plan member, the person receiving care, of here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to calculate this. That's fair for you as a person running a business, paying people to provide this service to this individual and their family. 
as well as acknowledge uh, you know, that there needs to be some margin of flexibility because not everything works the same way for every individual. Highly individualized care produces the best long-term outcomes. Um, lots of studies continue to prove that. To your point, the, uh, the systems of the payers are largely not equipped, particularly in behavioral health, to manage the contracting that providers like yourselves are willing to put together to say, we will do lots of different things to share that responsibility, that risk, right. in order to invest in our clients' care because we've spent time designing a treatment program that is highly complex, flexible, and, and, and a combination of evidence-based practices and practice-based experience. Uh, we know that these things work and, and are impactful, but have built enough room for them to be uh, flexible to meet each person's needs to the best of our ability as they respond to the care, uh, and that we're willing to invest and we, we feel confident enough in our service that we can even, you know, some might call it a warranty, uh, we can say that, yes, we're, we're going to invest and say if a person needs to, to come back in after an, you know, a, a time to discharge and they're struggling, that we're going to eat that cost as a part of this fee, right? This becomes the value-based proposal right. Right. of sharing risk, but really responsibility, um, as well as other metrics that are organizational health metrics that are based on actual measurable outcomes of how treatment is measured and the changes that a person is responding to to show and prove to the payer that this is working and is effective for this individual and really outline that. So in the broader healthcare system, there are lots of these systems that are already set up and going for these conditions, but the diagnostics for, for behavioral healthcare are really challenging to do that with. It doesn't mean it's impossible because there are people doing it in yeah. the country. Medicaid has a mandate to increase the number of percentage of values-based contracting that they provide in their communities uh, progressively over the next, really, 15 years. But there's another milestone coming up in 2025. There's a milestone in 2035 that more than 30% of Medicaid contracts for federal, where federal dollars are invested and spent need to be values-based contracting. So the challenge you know, for the payers is they're not set up to do it because their systems are set up to spend as little as possible not to share risk. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to do the contracting. They don't mm -hmm. know how, even when they design them together with providers and they say, yes, we're willing to do that, the actual reimbursement departments, their systems aren't set up to measure these outcomes. So we have to teach the providers and we have to teach the payers how to do this together. And there are lots of wonderful systems. Uh, there's, you know, groups in Pennsylvania and throughout the Northeast groups in California doing this work. One of our board members, uh, Jane Pringle, at the C4 Recovery Foundation has built an amazing system uh, that's been impacting counties in Pennsylvania, saving what might, some might believe is unbelievable amounts of money by doing uh, these values-based systems that teach providers and payers how to provide better treatment and, and better management of the process together in a way that's collaborative. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I think the challenge is when people look at like the fee-for-service model and say, well, you should be able to produce it for this amount of money, and that's just not real. Right. You know, uh, the cost of production. It's not even about margin on top of that. It's just about operating expenses right. of behavioral health care people, and this brings up a workforce challenge uh, that we'll, you know, <laughs> we'll probably talk about, so I'll ask you to parking lot that one for a moment. <laughs> but the, the reality is that, you know, paying people adequately requires a business to have 
good health care, good compensation, to, to recruit highly trained, highly talented, uh, highly experienced people. And that doesn't come without an expense, right? Let alone, you know, not just the human resources and the facilitation, but the cost of advertising, the cost of providing care, the flexibility that's needed to be able to manage the number of hours. So, you know, it's a challenge for both providers and payers, but the payers in particular want to believe that if you can fix costs, you can fix outcome. Mm -hmm. That's not really true. If you fix costs too low, the quality of your outcomes is capitated by what you're able to spend to produce it. Mm -hmm. And the annual contract negotiations for an in-network provider typically are three to five percent. It's just inflation plus one. Right. And if you fight real hard as a well-designed payer, which we do a lot of this in collaboration with our clients, of helping them renegotiate or even just get credentialed in the first place for manageable rates that are actually acceptable, yeah. <laughs> that they can work with. Um, but for some groups, we say, stay out of network um, because you don't want to compromise the quality of your care. You're spending a certain amount to produce it, and your outcomes are really impactful. Mm -hmm. Well, that comes at a price, right. and someone has to pay it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, what, uh, what would you say to the to the family systems that might engage with you know a company like Peaks, of course at Peaks we believe in each and every moment we are staffing, we're doing the appropriate things. But I think one of the challenges as out-of-network providers is we are legitimately trying to use the resources that we have, the income that we have to provide efficacious care, to feed the system, uh, the staff, the salaries, inflationary periods, and so forth. And it does, as you're saying, come at a high cost. But I think one of the major struggles of our industry, especially against the backdrop of healthy in-network providers, is this out-of-network providers can get paid this much, but if they don't insert any sort of those assets, they're pulling on the systems. And so what would you say about that as an issue in our industry or add to that or? Well, I would say for family members in particular, understanding the quality of care and, and looking at resources like I suggested initially in that phone call is the starting point, but don't just settle for the in-network contract. Look at the provider and make sure they can meet your family members' needs. Mm. And you know, I mean, the cost of treatment, you know, the out-of-network deductible amount. Uh, honestly, for, for many treatment centers, and this will be regionally driven, um, is one-fifth the cost of a funeral. And I'm not trying to be dramatic, but it's usually around five to six thousand mm -hmm. uh, dollars of initial out-of-pocket expense for the deductible to be met. That's an investment mm -hmm. um, and can be recouped. Um, it is something that, you know, when you work with a, a, a well-trained provider such as Peaks that will support you getting the out-of-network reimbursement, become educated about what that process is because the value often for the right provider who's not a network that is out-of-network, uh, the experience of the care quality is dramatically higher. Uh, and so working with a provider who knows how to support you as a family member, because you as the family member, the plan member of the holder of the policy, are always going to get better response from the payer. Uh, and so being able to collaborate with your provider on how do I do that? Um, and oftentimes, um, what we find, and there are, are companies that do what's called patient or client advocacy with billing to help them get the reimbursement for that, is that that money is an investment. Uh, and it's just like investing in college or education or workforce training. Uh, but the truth is, I go back to that example of it's you know, generally a fifth the cost of a funeral. A funeral these days 
with a headstone and a casket and all that's twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars to invest in your family members health care by spending a few thousand dollars to make sure they get the best care possible within your resources is the smartest thing you can do and so to work with that provider and say how do you help me if I choose you because you're not in network and you're out of network how can you help me make sure that we get the best value from the insurance company so ask the provider the questions what does that mean how do you assist what does billing look like what are my responsibilities what are your responsibilities and being really clear and and you know groups like peaks and others uh, you know who are high integrity authentic service providers will be easily be able to in a mouse click send you the information if they haven't already uh, in the process while you're exploring treatment as a resource and be able to walk you through exactly what that is what the documentation looks like how you collaborate together to provide the best care for your family member hopefully that answers your question it does i love it that's exactly what i was looking for i i think that just acknowledging all of the different resources that exist out there and again educating the consumer on uh, their opportunity within this to just ask thoughtful questions to reach out to resources that are right there in their wallet and to you know build up a platform this and i think and you know at the end of the day it's challenging because you know out-of-pocket costs even in network you know depending on where the 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 contract came from or the policy came from can be expensive in that regard but i think what we're thinking about here is an investment and to the you know, the language around the opioid pandemic, if we're gonna, you know, that is literally taking lives and we, you've shared just now the cost value proposition of what that would look like to entertain that versus the investment being, you know, 20% of the cost versus an outcome like that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just a reality. I mean, by the time people are experiencing substance use, misuse, and, and get to a level of diagnostic abuse and, and dependence, people have already spent three or four times that on legal fees and uh, you know, other measures that aren't treatment oriented to try and help produce change in someone's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so not to say that treatment is the answer, but uh, for those who qualify and meet that criteria, that investment and, and a wise investment in the right level of care at the right time in a continuum that really helps someone develop the stabilization they need to address the acute symptoms that they're experiencing all the way into their long-term reintegration into a sustainable, happy life in a community is the investment that people are looking for. But to Jason's point, when a family member is calling, they're in one of the most distressed periods other than when their son or daughter was supposed to be home at 10 o'clock mm-hmm. and it's 11.30 and they're waiting for the call. Yep. That says they're in the hospital, they're in the morgue, this is you know, the Colorado Springs Sheriff's Department. Right. You know, this is Bobby. Your friend was supposed to, your son's friend were, was here, but they ran out last night, and I don't know where they are. You know, that, that call that every parent fears of surviving mm-hmm. their children. Mm-hmm. The reality is that this is an investment. Yeah. You know, and, and it's an, an investment that pays off. But to that point of, it's a continuum of care. You know, it's not one and done. It's about evolving needs and evolving recovery. I think another complicating factor that I'd like to throw in there is that we, one of our core values is certainly helping families along the way too. And, um, and we provide direct services to families. We offer them support groups and, and access to clinicians. And that doesn't really fit into good medical care boxes. Like if you break your leg, you don't provide treatment to the mom who is distraught by it. Right. Like us, but, but we do because it, we look at 
addiction and mental health is a family issue to address. And if, if the family isn't helped, like we can treat an individual as well as we can and then send them back to the same environment and that won't work uh, no matter how long or how good of work we do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's really, and I'll broaden it and say the family is, is the core level of community, but it's really the entire community mm. because no one exists and lives in a vacuum. And the impacts of someone's substance use uh, journey to, to abuse and dependence impacts a community as well. It doesn't happen in isolation. Uh, you know, no one wakes up after, you know, 50 years of shooting heroin in a closet that's never affected anyone. There's lives connected to lives. Mm. Uh, and so I think the, the, there are two parts of that I'd like to respond to. One, the payers need to do better in being able to reimburse for family services independent of the primary right. member's treatment experiences. And that is getting better, but it's a long ways away from being sustainable. Um, and organizations such as Peaks do invest in that, and that's how they invest in communities, by offering you know, free levels of service that are just community integration and collaboration mm -hmm. partnerships. Mm -hmm. And so I think to the, to the bigger part of community, it's really all the resources in the community understanding each other and understanding what's available and being able to solve the challenge that each community is experiencing. Simultaneously, as a family member, you know, getting involved in, in the process of your own healing and defining your own recovery. I'll define recovery the way that we do at C4 Consulting. Um, which I've, I've shared with Brandon through the years. So our definition of recovery is the restoration of one's humanity. Hmm. So it's not about diagnostics, it's not about modality, it's about whatever's impacted your life to be your highest, wisest, best, most authentic, connected self. That's your recovery. So for a family member, it's not the substance use issue, it's the living with the stress mm -hmm. of, of loving someone who's struggling. You know, uh, with someone would say financial Spending issues, a process addiction, it's the loved ones around all of those things, right? The family members have their own acute and, and post-traumatic stress with those events. That phone call is life-threatening to a parent, mm -hmm. uh, to a sibling, to a family member, right? That is the definition of part of the diagnostics for, you know, traumatic stress, you know, life-threatening repetitive conditions. You know, these things don't happen in isolation. So, Really being able to look at this collaboratively as a community um, and, and being able to do two things. One, to really look at your community and how it spends its tax dollars because this circles back to the conversation, right? Insurance, commercial insurance base rates are based on whatever the Medicaid rates are for your locality as a minimum. A lot of contracting is done initial. Those, those lobbed rates that providers get initially are usually 30 to 40% above whatever the base Medicaid rate is in your zip code, mm -hmm. right? Which generally isn't enough um, to entice enough providers to do Medicaid alone, let alone highly complex services that include serving families mm -hmm. with a portion of the margin that's reinvested in the community. Mm -hmm. right. um, so getting involved, um, and Brandon knew this was gonna happen, getting involved on that <laughs> level locally of, of where your tax dollars being invested and in advocating for that, and also advocating to the payer you know, your, your commercial insurance, whether you're going in network or out, to say what's available to me as a family member and taking advantage of every inch of that, because there are services that are available. Reaching out to the community and educating yourself about who are the resources, even if you're not experiencing it or a family member isn't experiencing that. Just understanding what your resources are. How do I get involved? How do I support my community in its health? Because no community is without impact of, of behavioral health needs. Absolutely.
you know, I always love talking with you because I have thought bubble questions and you just answer them in real time. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, the takeaway for me and the family systems out there is it's these decisions aren't as simple as Medicaid in-network, out-of-network, make no. a choice, right? It's a very complex system that we're engaged with, not only as providers, um, but it's a complex system that the family, you know, through better questions and uh, insights and knowing the community and the resources around them can be best uh, supported when these trials and tribulations reach those family systems uh, in that regard. So, you know, reaching out uh, and, uh, you know, asking those good questions is imperative. Understanding the complexities of the systems as well, too, I think helps inform good care and what you're looking for. And at the same time, you know, when we talk about those Medicaid systems and what's holding up the in-network contracting, the tax dollars matter, you know, and as a country, it matters where we put those dollars and, you know, historically, to lightly bring up the drug work, we've put it into police and, you know, probation and the systems and jails and prisons and so forth and uh, have left little consideration for this other side of impact around assessments and these types of things that might, um, you know, bring about greater healing, not just for the individual, but for communities in general. And so our ability as family systems to support in-network contracting probably it's not unreasonably low. It's probably lower than our ability as political advocates to get out there in the community and say, we demand these services be present for my loved one or just in general for my community. Absolutely. I think if, if people are able to, on the most local level, uh, and again, not just state, but your community, your town, your uh, municipality, to understand what are the resources that are publicly funded and how do those get decisions, those decisions really get made. Because your votes, in those cast ballots at various times through the years and through the, the political cycles have tremendous impact. And if you ignore those, and many people do, they just focus on the ones that hit their wallet mm -hmm. and their pocketbook or their political interests, and then they skip by the rest of them and say, ah, oh, somebody else will take care of that. And, and that is, to me, quite frankly, irresponsible <laughs> and not citizenship, but that's, a, again, another podcast, um, <laughs> which is something, you know, reintegration and recovery is about citizenship. Uh, but to the, to the point of it really is about being active and aware and, and taking the time to read those booklets. I know I got mine in the mail for Colorado recently mm -hmm. and line by line reading those, those, uh, you know, those different propositions. Proposition 122, I yeah. believe, is <laughs> one we were talking about not that long ago, right? Things that are really important because that's how it gets made. But also understanding you're paying these taxes and where do you want these dollars to go? So talking with your community leadership groups, talking with your action, uh, you know, your local action committees, uh, you know, whether it's a municipality, a town, or a city, or a county, and, and understanding, because that's where those decisions are going to get made. There's always public opinion referendum opportunity uh, at every point, and so becoming an active participant in that is how you change the health of your community. Mm -hmm. To say, where are these, are these tax dollars really being spent well in behavioral health, or are they just, you know, flowing and I have no idea where because you as a citizen of the taxpayer actually have a right to know mm -hmm. uh, and they do what they can in the bureaucratic systems to educate you but educated providers know that and so oftentimes call your your local peaks call Brandon yeah because he will know the answer he'll say actually here's the person you want to call you know here in Colorado Springs here's the person you know that I know as a contact in Denver uh, here's the person I know in California that I, I collaborate with as a provider network mm -hmm. that's involved in this. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we as providers interact with those parts of the community through offices of behavioral health and city zoning commissions and, 
you know, we build those relationships because that's how we're good providers. Mm -hmm. um, but as, as, you know, citizens in our communities and active community members, public health is not someone else's responsibility. It takes all of us. And so being educated, being invested and making a choice and not waiting until you have a need, but recognizing that the needs already impacting your community yeah. today and saying, where do I want that to go? I don't want, yes, I want more safety officers in my community, but I want those safety officers to be trained on deflection, right? To be able to have behavioral health assessment capacity or resources. So, yep, I'm all about that tax dollar going to local law enforcement, but I want some of that tax dollar to actually be used for training for, for law enforcement to collaborate with treatment providers. Um, you know, there are groups like the Police Treatment and Community Collaborative that focus on deflection rather than diversion programming, which involves connecting directly to providers. So rather than arresting someone, it's actually assessing and calling a behavioral health provider in the community to say, I think they actually need assessment and treatment first. We'll get to the legal impact uh, where it makes sense, but like, let's get them help now mm -hmm. because this is where this is coming from. It's coming right. from a behavioral health need. Right. Uh, and there are not just movements, but there are large tax dollars being deployed for that at the federal level to, to resolve some of those huge challenges, the recognition of the you know, billions of dollars that were wasted on the war on drugs. Yeah. That didn't provide safety for a community, that didn't do anything to impact change in a community, uh, and, and didn't really produce any you know, better wellness in a community, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Love that. Um, always well stated. I, you know, for the sake of time, I think I want to uh, just do a, a, not a, not a slight left here, but I, I think, you know, kind of recapitulating kind of how we've gotten, you know, to this moment is that, you know, just understanding the, the systems uh, that are, you know, associated with all of these services, how they impact the services, where the resources are coming from, what is, what we are capable of as an organization outside of those uh, resources. Um, and then I think from there, a big component of this and why we're advocating for taxpayer dollars in any direction is the community. You know, here at Peaks, right, Jason, we only have so much opportunities. We only have so much we can give to the family systems, the individuals, and so forth. The community has incredible resources. And if those are intact and true for the individual, and then we have a place to send those individuals to greater support to the family systems and so forth, uh, healing um, is much more likely as an outcome in that regard, or at least much more supportive of the services we're running. In the absence of those communal services where the world continues to be scary and frustrating for the individual families, communities and so forth, you know, the outcomes are going to drop, you know, in that regard, respectively. Um, so appreciate how just, you know, how we got here and uh, where we've come from. And with that, I think, you know, one of the things that I would love to talk about uh, without, without talking through all of the issues maybe you experience, you know, when a company calls you for consulting services, I think one of the ones we've talked about is staffing priorities and how to do that well, because even if I have the resources, to pay you know, uh, our staff really well and provide benefits and all of those things that are nurturing, at the end of the day, um, if I just brute force say work harder, <laughs> you know, in that regard, it's gonna come at a cost. And I imagine that you know, allocating those resources and really understanding how to manage teams and systems is a big part of the consulting gig. And just uh, hopeful for the viewers out there that we can kind of walk through that together and what that looks like within your consulting uh, operations. Absolutely, a lot of the work of our engagements involves helping operations uh, refine where they're deploying their resources uh, to best serve the people serving the people. We all know in the provider world, um, and some families know this, that 
the number one thing that happens. It's people serving people. It's called human service for a reason. Right, right. Um, and I'd say that not glibly, but to really out of tremendous humility and respect that it's people treating people. And that for an operator that their biggest expense is staff and treating them well and making sure that the staff is, is you know, not just well-trained, but maintains competence and grows skill level uh, and, and continues to evolve and grow their ability to be healthy to meet the needs of the people they serve. Uh, the healthier the organization's staff, the higher quality services are, are possible for an organization. And so the investment of any wise organization is their staff. Um, the challenges with that is it's not very attractive when the pay rates are significantly lower in behavioral health across the board compared to other healthcare enterprises. Uh, and other jobs, you know, when it pays as much to be a manager at McDonald's as it does, uh, you know, when it really pays three times as much to manage a, a McDonald's drive-through as it does to, to be a frontline technician on a, on a second shift at a treatment center, mm -hmm. that's sad. When you can get better benefits because workforce is so challenged working at Starbucks um, and not have to deal with as much stress, although you're still dealing with the public right. mm -hmm. uh, and some probably people who need treatment. <laughs> um, as your consumers, the reality is that that's really challenging to recruit highly trained staff. So our education systems have been challenged for years to make it attractive uh, to become trained, to become not just clinicians, because that's the, the glory. I want to be the therapist, the healer. But every level of <laughs> behavioral health, there are different <laughs> workforce pathways. And so being able to think of it as human capital investment and human capital management. Uh, you know, is the modern day for human resources. Um, and really being able to see the people as the primary value of service delivery. The challenge is when rates are low, businesses can't afford to pay beyond a certain point, so it becomes harder to attract and retain people. Let alone this work does come with a, a compassion cost. You know, compassion fatigue, empathy uh, fatigue lead to burnout. And, and every job class has their capacity for that in different types. Um, but the helping profession of, of helping people who are under duress and sick, uh, who are challenged, who are, are behaviorally outwardly struggling and asking for help by acting out as their primary mechanism uh, does come at an investment. So developing workforce is a tremendous need. And there is a humongous workforce challenge that's been building for decades. Yeah. And this stems back to prior to managed care organizations coming together and trying fixing costs in behavioral health care. It really stems back to the early 80s, um, and really the 70s at some level, um, with that where the bar has been set incredibly low and it's harder for employers to push that bar up to be able to adequately compensate people to invest in their staff health uh, and to do the best that they can to, to address the workforce challenge. When people can you know, really uh, get to a place in their pathway of, again, making more managing uh, a warehouse than they can working in a treatment center serving someone in their community and as a participant in a program. It's really sad and extremely challenging. So being able to have more dollars available invested in education and training outside of the treatment centers, you know, for highly trained staff to be available is one, one part. Um, so those efforts, uh, you know, uh, by decision makers at, at different levels, federal, state, local, uh, you know, about, um, you know, tuition, 
uh, remission and, and reimbursement are really important because it does allow people to then um, you know, save money and, and keep growing individually. But for the workforce challenge, really encouraging people to look at the helping professions and, and, and to look at them honestly and not to, to make them more attractive requires, again, pushing back on your tax dollars and where they're spent, pushing back on the payers to say, well, how are we supposed to provide highly, you know, highly reimbursable care when you won't uh, negotiate values-based rates for us to be able to produce quality outcomes at increasing levels over time. They're all interconnected. So again, to your, to your point in question, the workforce challenges are real mm -hmm. uh, and, and very difficult. So those of you who have an interest in um, behavioral health, call your local treatment provider and say, are there opportunities for me to volunteer to find out if I might like to do this? Uh, because most organizations have some volunteer capacity and mm -hmm. you can get exposed and see, is this something that I actually would enjoy? Because the compassion satisfaction is the part we also measure in our work uh, of being able to say, why do I do this work? And what do I get out of it besides a paycheck? It's right. saving people's lives, seeing people grow. It's being able to, you know, almost 31 years later, you know, have a guy who was a real challenge for his community causing all kinds of trouble um, go through a treatment process and then years later be invited to a podcast like this mm -hmm. to share how we serve the community together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the reality of, of that's the passion of the work that we do. We get into this because we want to help people, individuals, families, ourselves. We want to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, being... Uh, an advocate of the concept of citizenship, it really is getting, getting involved and exposing yourself and say, where can I volunteer? And if it's not in a local treatment center, is there a local council uh, on behavioral health that I can get involved in? Maybe it's not substance use. Maybe a challenge you've had is depression, and maybe there's you know, a volunteer opportunity somewhere in there where it's manning a phone to be a resource when a family member calls, says, how do I find treatment? Right? There, communities have these resources, you mm -hmm. know, and so getting involved and, and not just giving of yourself, but getting involved and exposing yourself as part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with that, I, you know, it is, it is election season. It is uh, proposition season, all these things coming up here on November 8th, uh, you know, here in Colorado and certainly across the country in that regard. And I, and I was reading something the other day on an article on psychiatrists. I think it was something like some absurd number, like 60% of psychiatrists are 55 years and older. Meaning we have a massive psychiatric gap, you know, coming in the background in that regard. And, you know, I, I'm hopeful for the voters to hear me clearly on this. It's, 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 there's many challenges, but if we don't start today and keep pushing into the healthcare system, not just med the medical side, but certainly the behavioral healthcare side, we are going to be in a, a terrible jam here <laughs> in the next five to 10 years. And, you know, your vote matters and your interest in where the taxable dollars goes. And it doesn't matter what side of the political coin you sit in on side, you know, in America, uh, it's about your community uh, at the end of the day. And like you're stating, I thought it was eloquently stated, we support local law enforcement. We also support training around that to nurture the potential issues to, you know, talk uh, to create uh, deflection motivations versus, you know, the other possibilities within the system and the divergence programs that have hist historically existed. So. No, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's now more than ever, and there will be more press and there will be more impact. And the, the traumatic stress that the world has experienced in the last several years is bringing what was already a rising tsunami of behavioral health need as we continue to progress as communities through 
the COVID pandemic into towards recovery states because we're still in the disasters phase technically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, as we get into the recovery phases, the, the mental health need and the impact is going to continue to rise uh, across, you know, the world and so communities. So to your point, it takes 12 years to train a psychiatrist. It takes that four years of pre-med, that four years additional after for medical school, and then another four of residency and training to be, to be a psychiatrist out there serving communities. Um, you know, we have to do this. It takes, you know, four and a half to six years to get an initially trained master's level clinician. Uh, not fully licensed, that's another couple <laughs> years on top of it, right? right? Of supervision and, and guidance and mentoring, um, you know, and, and there are pathways. There are communities where, you know, peer advocacy movements and, and various levels of opportunity, food service. Uh, I was on LinkedIn the other day and a, a, a culinary expert that worked in an organization that we served years ago, um, really he left a very lucrative corporate culinary training job to work in a treatment center because he wanted to do this work with people and serve a team mm. that was helping people in his community. And mm. it wasn't about money. And he got paid well, but you know, he makes, you know, made five times what he was making in the corporate world and said, eh, I want to do something meaningful mm -hmm. that, that, that has that compassion satisfaction mm. right. yeah. that I can't get from a dollar that yeah. really is about that connection. Yeah. You know, so to that, that connection back to, it's all about relationships. Yep. You know, it's all about our, our connectedness in the world uh, and to those things. And so, you know, that political motivation and that workforce challenge and, and meeting that is something we need to invest in now. And I know that there will be a generation of epidemiologists that will come as a result of the last two years. Right. And as much my hope is, and although it'll be a long ways out, there's going to be a generation of people willing to, to participate in behavioral health as well but the need gap is actually very real for organizations today. Mm -hmm. We can't increase access to services if we don't have staff to serve beyond a certain point. And the community needs gonna keep rising. Um, so being, being able to do that now, so those of you who are listening to this podcast or family members who are considering human service, double down. <laughs> double <laughs> down now. Double down, <laughs> let's triple down uh, yeah. for the sake of it and see where it takes us. And you know, I think you know, kind of coming to the end of the time here and want to be cognizant of time as, as you know, the kiddos on the Facebooks and so forth and everybody watching, you know, do three seconds at a time and we've given them thousands of seconds at this moment. So, uh, but with that, I think it's, you know, it's easy sometimes to sit back, wax political, talk about the problems that exist, you know, move through some solutions with it and then kind of put our hands up and say, well, that's all we're gonna do. You know, we've talked about how big the community uh, part of this journey is for behavioral health providers, for re-immersion into the community from the person who's suffering from, you know, mental health episodes, behavioral uh, issues, substance use disorder, and so forth. And, um, you know, the thing that I really uh, admire about you, Jonathan, is, is, is your ethics around all of this. You're not only talking the talk, but you're walking the the walk at the same time, too. And, you know, I, I know I recently learned this about, you know, you uh, today, actually, you know, around the foster care, you know, being a foster care family in a setting and contributing to your community in that sort of way. And uh, would just love to, uh, for the viewers to hear more about that advo advo advocacy at the community level from a foster care standpoint. Um, you know, kind of maybe what led you to this uh, as a contribution to the community and what you're seeing um, 
of value in your service and um, maybe call on you know some viewers out there to maybe take these similar steps that you've taken as well. I really appreciate that. So as, as uh, Brandon uh, acknowledged, and thank you for that, uh, my, my wife and I are, are foster care providers uh, in our community uh, and uh, open our home to uh, children of a certain age and, and uh, opportunity to really serve them to help bridge their need gaps to be restored to their families and their communities. Uh, you know, part of the motivation for us as a family to do that is our, our belief in that, that every child deserves uh, an opportunity for a loving home. Uh, and that if we're going to heal communities, you know, for me personally, I grew up in a neighborhood that had several foster care homes, and, and I, you know, through my own circumstances, almost faced a similar uh, challenge uh, due to health challenges in my family system where, you know, that was a real possibility uh, for my brothers and I. Uh, and so very young, I had decided early that that was going to be a pathway that I would pursue. For me as a behavioral health care provider, um, you know, working in substance use mental health and, and, you know, through the last 27 years of my life uh, and ongoing for the next number of decades, um, part of the satisfaction for me is the work that I get to do uh, as a, a therapist, as a consultant, as a provider. But part of the satisfaction for me is being able to serve in my community uh, locally to really make a difference in, in someone's lives, to give back in a different way for all of those people who contributed to my life, um, no matter how small that contribution was, to, to focus that effort and share that unconditional love and positive regard and give someone else an opportunity as well. Uh, so for, for me, you know, and, and my wife, that's part of that motivation is to really give, uh, you know, not just a child, but children an opportunity to have a different experience. You know, we're trained by behavioral health care providers. My wife is a, a, a licensed marriage and family clinician, addiction uh, therapist uh, as well, and, and trauma trained, and, and is a trauma therapist. And so our, our background and training as providers is one part, but our commitment to it was really about, you know, giving people an opportunity to have a different experience, uh, to know that something else is possible, and not just hope, um, but to really share that relationship and build a lifelong relationship with them. Um, you know, so in the children that we've been privileged to serve in, in our process as foster care providers, that's, that's been really the greatest reward is to, to sow seeds and to fertilize the soil of their future growth, uh, you know, within the community, to give them an opportunity that they weren't able to have for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to, to do our best to show them something different, something possible. Uh, we're human beings. We're far from perfect. I tend to curse quite a bit. Uh, you know, which our kiddos sometimes get along because we serve teenagers uh, most often and, uh, you know, I'm a human being. But to show them that you can have a meaningful life uh, and that it comes from, you know, self-care and it comes from, you know, balanced mental health and behavioral health and wellness and that, that it's possible and fun and it isn't just nonsense and that, you know, somewhat because of the work that I get to do, they're exposed to therapy probably more often than they want to be whenever they're providers. But mm. in that sense, you know, we're... We use the term aunt and uncle. Uh, you know, they have parents, whether they're a part of their lives or not. Uh, and so we're a part of their lives in that capacity. The, the community service aspect for us and, and for me and for others is that, you know, there are tremendous opportunities within foster care systems and tremendous need for even volunteer opportunities, you know, to, you know, explore providing, you know, being a foster care provider such as my wife and I are, but even at less intensive levels of being a volunteer in an organization, 
uh, you know, that has need. Being willing to, you know, if you love baseball, uh, you know, go coach, you know, some foster care kids on how to play baseball. Mm. Um, you know, if you love golf, uh, go do that. If you, you know, if you love macrame and sewing, you know, <laughs> sew some blankets, sew some clothes. Like, you know, the, it sounds silly and it sounds hokey, but the reality is that organizations need more than money. They need people. Mm -hmm. That the healing that, that these, you know, children in these families deserve and need comes from other human beings, as we said. So there are lots of ways to volunteer. You know, there, I was giving an example before, uh, you know, we kicked off this discussion of, you know, there are tremendous needs for when kids age out of foster care systems. When they become 18 and they're not 21 yet, and they still have resources, but to, to volunteer to open your home, to volunteer to, to be a respite provider, to, you know, volunteer to be a coach, um, you know, to, to become somewhat trained and, and be able to say, yeah, you know, we'll have kids who don't have a home to go to at the holidays. We'll welcome them into our home and, and share that with them. Um, because there are those kids that age out in the system that, that don't have families or their families aren't healthy and they, they need to step away from them, but they still don't have resources uh, to be able to do that. So to be a part of a community for us, a, a big belief is that we want our lives to be better and we want our future to be better <coughs> for, for our children and the children of others is to, to invest in healing those communities where they're, you know, impact and for us, this is a way to do that. So I, you know, certainly encourage you to, to Google your local foster care organizations and find out where there's some volunteer opportunities to explore it, to consider it, you know, to, to look at training, to look at, you know, what some of those opportunities are. And if that's, you know, uh, not something that's attractive to, to think about rather than donate just a goodwill, to donate those clothes your kids have outgrown or no longer wear to a foster care organization because there's a child somewhere in need. Beautiful. Hmm. Well, I greatly appreciate that. Before I take us out on this reel, we got this camera here. It's been staring at you the whole time. Hopefully you can <laughs> look into it to the, you know, the viewers out there in support of the organizations who may be in need of C4 Consulting Services and uh, you know, let them know how to find you guys, where to look for you, and uh, yeah, take us out there. Absolutely. So uh, best way to get a hold of us is our website, www.the4-consulting.com. Lots of ways to reach out, requests of information, blogs, all kinds of things, team profiles. Um, but even if it's, you're not a provider and you're just a person in a community looking for a resource, part of the four C's, you know, our four C's from the foundation through the consulting organization are convening, collaborating, consulting, and conferencing. And, and convening and collaborating, you know, lead us to consulting. And so consulting isn't just about organizations, it's about resources in the community. Our, our our consultants are across the country in, in 19 states uh, and have resources, so please don't hesitate to reach out for help. Terrific. All righty. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on here with us today. Uh, Jason, though quite, I hope you learned a ton because you know <laughs> I've given you a ton of tangents and meetings and otherwise in our organization, and I cannot state it ever as eloquently as he just did, you know, in regards to, you know, the trials and tribulations we're experiencing as an industry and so forth. So if anything, hopefully you got a good kick of, oh, that's what Brandon's been talking about <laughs> all these times. So uh, either way, appreciate you being here as always, Jason. Thanks, and Brandon. for the viewers out there, thanks so much for joining us. We hope this episode was informative about our industry, its complexities, all of its moving part, 
Uh, but hopefully the takeaway at the end of the day is that we have the power as uh, a voting community to ensure that our communities are healthy and whole. And there are ways to acknowledge that and hold our representatives accountable to that. Um, so let's get to work and hold them accountable this November. Uh, in that regard, uh, again, Brennan Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. Uh, signing off here, please look us up on the Facebook, the TikToks, the Twitters, all of the social media assets out there. We're on them somewhere at any given time. And uh, until next time, thanks for sitting with us. Hopefully you're done with your popcorn at this point. We'll see you next time. Cool.